Welcome, everyone, to the Livestock Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Reed. It's our 22nd episode as we get into really the start of that fall run. If you're in the agriculture business, this is a crazy time of year. Crops coming off, bales are getting hauled. We're selling calves, weaning calves, sending kids back to school. You know, everything's happening. So just a reminder out there, make sure you're taking care of yourself. Fuel your body, put that good stuff in you, get a breakfast, a few glasses of water every morning. Make sure you're mindful of how you're doing and how you're feeling. Because when you're wanting to perform at, uh, at your peak, at the maximum efficiency, you can't do that on an empty fuel tank. Uh, just, uh, you know, if you need uh, reference-wise or maybe you're feeling a little bit down, feel free to jump back to our episode with Cynthia Beck. And, you know, there's there's a lot of great discussion there on on mental health within agriculture and that. But, again, busy time of year can be lots of stress on people. So sure hope everyone is uh, is doing well as we wrap up into harvest we will have our go and show and segment here next coming from the cliffs farm at the cliffs farm we're excited for our ladies of the prairies online hereford female sale october 9th with sc online sales hereford heifer calves bred heifers and crossbred bred heifers and heifer calves so make sure you check that out that's October 9th on SC Online Sales, Ladies of the Prairies Hereford Sale. Our first show was Old's Fall Classic, September 30th through October 2nd. The Immortals Jackpot, Stetler, Alberta, October 21st. Manitoba Egg X in Brandon, Manitoba, October 28th through the 31st. The Lloydminster Stockade Roundup, November 1st through the 5th, Lloydminster, Saskatchewan. Celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Royal Agricultural Winter Fair held in Toronto, Ontario, will be November 4th through the 13th. Edmonton Farm Fair, November 9th through the 12th, Edmonton, Alberta. And rounding out Canadian Western Agribition, the big CWA, November 28th through December 3rd in Regina, Saskatchewan. Our guest today coming in will be Raleigh Bateman, just Located right outside of Humboldt, Saskatchewan, Raleigh is no stranger to purebred circles and you know living up and down the show road. I enjoy the stories, and if you know Raleigh, you can appreciate the man loves to visit and has some wonderful stories, so it worked out exceptionally well to get him to come onto the podcast and, and have a visit with us. Right quick... I wanted to just give a little shout out to New Vision Agro in Hague, Saskatchewan, right off Highway Number Eleven. They are offering to all Livestock Podcast listeners fifteen dollars off Right Licks low moisture blocks or Right Licks lick tubs if you mention the Livestock Podcast. And this promo runs up until October the thirteenth. Your one-stop shop for net wrap twine silage plastic oil and lubricants animal health supplies and feed for all species of livestock find them on facebook instagram and their website newvisionagro.com or call 306-225-2200 
306-225-2226. That's 306-225-2226 to book your Bright Licks Lick Tubs for this fall. Remember, mention the Lifestock Podcast and receive $15 off all your orders of Right Licks Low Moisture Block Lick Tubs. Thanks, New Vision, for jumping on with us in, in episode 22. And as always, or, you know, going through again, we have Klaassen Cattle Equipment. Sure appreciate them as our season one sponsor. Make sure you're checking out their new website, Klaassen Industries. Check out those awesome, awesome brush packages they have, whether it's the dual brush stands or the brush specially designed for the bullpen where it's also kind of got a little cage built in the middle, two brushes off each side because if a bull's getting beat up or getting ridden on or just wants to get away from the other bulls for a sec, it's actually a wonderful little spot and real uh, ingenuity in how that was designed. So thanks again to Clausen Industries, our season one sponsor. With that, let's get into our interview with Mr. Raleigh Bateman. You're talking about like your sister and brother-in-law and bringing the cows out to Saskatchewan. So where did you grow up, Raleigh? I grew up around Edmonton, okay. around Barhead, and then I moved south to Turner Valley, Pritter, in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, I'm not even sure what days it was. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, well, I had a, a good opportunity to buy some property and had relatives there, and uh, I had... Uh, my mother moved in with me. My father passed away in 1979, and... In 1981, uh, maybe late 80s, 1980, she decided she didn't want to live alone, and she just uh, funked herself in my house and said, okay, here I am. <laughs> so I uh, kept my mother for the next number of years still. Were around Barhead there before your father had passed away. Were you raised on a, like a family farm on a yes. ranch? Yep. No, family farm, a mixed farm dairy cows <clears throat> we'd be one of the early purebred herds in that country yeah uh, we'd uh and then see my grandfather uh well-to-do businessman in the city of edmonton and she had little tiny angus like we're talking real little right belt buckles uh yeah a belt buckle on me <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, they they had to be in the barn, and they um, it was just a pain in the ass, and they were tickiest. I I can tell you one thing: the more other breeds we put into Angus cattle, the less kicky they got. Because you'd wean them little black nuggets, as he used to call them, and oh, your shins were just black and blue. <laughs> Get a good welt up on you. Oh yeah, <laughs> just terrible, just terrible. The you know belt buckle Angus cows and and uh, you know your father's health troubles. Did yeah. the dairy kind of keep on running, or is that how you found shorthorn cattle? Was it at start milking shorthorns before you got into more of you know what we see today as beef shorthorns? No, the start of shorthorns was from uh, would be the most fashionable two herds in the province of Alberta. Probably uh, um, one for sure in all of Canada. Uh, used to drive by a place at Morinville right on Highway 2 called 
and his name was Kerrigan, C.B. Kerrigan. And he had, would have this fence, little pasture right beside the the yard was fully treed. You couldn't see much of the yard, yep. but on the south side, on the highway side, always four or five roan cows and a white bull. And so one day in 66, I think it was, my mother said, we'll just drive in and let's buy us a, a grown heifer. So we did. And it was her like of red the, of this roan. And so Jack Kerrigan, of course, because is, is famous in pulled shorthorn circles. Uh, it was his base that Bourbon and Lena Wise would buy and then become take it even further steps to you know, with their bouquet herd. And they they bought the herd sire along with some very choice cows by a bull called Carrick White Cloud. And I vaguely remember seeing him, but Jack uh, Kerrigan was one of the most interesting men because he was a money man out of Grand Prairie. And like Carrick White Cloud was brought in dam from the U.S. Costing lots of money. And his mother was called Barrel Jealousy. And Jealousy had uh, been a show heifer down there. And uh, in those eras, there was uh, different manipulations done to make them uh, fill in their soft loins and that kind of thing. And uh, in doing so, they cut her milk vein. Oh, really? So that, yeah, she never nursed a calf. Never nursed a calf. She'd she be never scarred. Ever, Yep, she never had another to uh, do it, anything with. Yeah. And so the Terry White Cloud was raised by some other cows, but it, it was uh, these grown females. And uh, we bought uh, a heifer that would be about right today, just not you know, type-wise, but not big enough. Right. And all because your mother would really was just fancied by the roan heifers off the highway. Yep. Nothing more than that. And now, you you know, it always seemed to be the same, you know, a number of roan cows in that field year after year after year. Right. And probably with, you know, probably five years, I'm going to guess. I don't know. Jack being a businessman maybe did that on purpose because, you know, the roans are maybe pulling other people off the highway, too. I, that would be an interesting thing to ask him. Uh, I guarantee that he would, uh, that was all done with purpose in mind. He always told me that you had to go and buy some high seller, whether she was any good or not. And he said, and you, if you have to lie and tell everybody how good she was, you'd lie. But you needed to have a high seller that did something. Because then that would bring breeders in. Well, and it's, this is well before any type of social media or individualized print advertisements. This is word of mouth, the paper and a breed publication where that's how you got your name out there. So if someone sees you as buying a high seller in the 60s and 70s, that's a, that's prominently displayed within the book. That's, that was big advertising yes absolutely and you know you get a write-up about you know like the brandon international bull sale 
it was no different than any local bull sale, but Brandon International, uh, the first one, I, I was at the very first uh, sale. <laughs> the, the Keystone Center, the facade of the new building was just built. And inside was, <laughs> oh, kind of like that we've experienced at both Agribition and Farm Fair. You know, the show must go on, and it was all sorts of construction. That gave you an international bull sale while they're champion. And so, uh, like, the, the Wises bouquet did very well with these cattle they got from Jack Kerrigan. And I did all right with mine. She was, uh, she never ever got big enough, but for the era, she was all right. But then the next step, following year, it's uh, two um, Rossi crosses, and uh, they they had bought a son of this white bull, this carrot white cloud, out of a mod bred cow out of Iowa. And mod, those mod cows were like five times bigger than anything they had. Right, coming out of the U.S. at that time. Yep. Yep, well, they were those South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, uh, everyday farmer cows. You know, they probably milked them for the first three months and uh, tell the calves could take it all and had a little bit of a cream check. And then the, uh, they were very rich in the blood of the Kastners. Okay. And Kastners of that family now have Angus cattle. Mm-hmm. But that was, uh, and the mob cows, Sandy Cross had some, uh, Rothney, you know, the uh, boys in Manitoba, Kinnabar, Gordons had some. Uh, they were high-flying cows and would produce champions for everybody. Right, that extra size and punch on that cow side right when yep. the type was changing in the yeah, Canadian landscape. It made landscape. a huge, mm-hmm. huge, huge difference. Uh, they, they marketed a son by Leader 21 called Kinnabar Leader the Fifth. And now he'd be born in, I think, 66. And so in 67, he might have topped the Douglas Test Center for the highest rate of gain and the heaviest bull, 365, 1,047 pounds in a year old. 1,047 in the Test Center. And that's gaining. You know, Douglas right. has, uh, for years, for, for all, was the very first one in Canada or Western Canada. Any consequence, but they would get five pounds a day gain. Oh yeah, D- Douglas Test Center's been infamous. Just yeah, th- that's where the top end of a lot of performance genetics were found in Western Canada. Yes, yes, we got identified at Douglas, and then <laughs> if you could beat Matt Draper or Bob Gordon to them, you might be lucky. Or <laughs> yeah. Those gentlemen might have pissed a local off, and you could die from them. Right, too, and also two prominent breeders from closer in the area that just had that access to it, right? Yeah. C- kind of like yeah. the perfect timing as they built it up the perfect storm. could have been any better, storm. yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, so you, you kind of get set up, and then the Munson brothers and Skerritts at Westlock, uh they, of course, Munson's uh, were like fashionable cattle. So they bought, got the bigger end of like Evencroft, Seacord at, at Edmonton. Uh, they were bringing in all this Edlin breeding out of Illinois and pretty little, but, you know, they wouldn't uh, buy 
a $2,000 bull that would be real close to the ground, yeah. Pud. But they'd buy his brother, who was bigger. And every one of them bigger cattle at Munson's, and they they bought a line bred son of this white cloud bull, bred back to his own mother. That was Bull Kate Oak Royal, the junior champion. And then he walked my pasture, and I bought the first son of his, a white son, of course. Okay. His mother was on all those uh, scouting. She, she was quite a short-run enthusiast. And that was Bo-K, like B-O-K? No, B-O-A. B-O-A? K-A-E. That's the better one to lead a wise uh, out of Ericana, Delawise. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, and that's why her daughter's name there, I think she now yeah, has the, like the a shop. boutique, yes. uh, her shop. That's where that name comes from. I, yes, I didn't yes. realize that, tying these two things together, so that's kind of neat. So shout out to the wises there. They popularized that uh, white cloud breeding. And you see, Dave Ball, uh, he was an Edmonton, but he was not a feeder. And so the odd time he would take a bull to the Edmonton bull sale, they'd cull him. Too big, not fat enough. Right, just they felt like he was in that presented state. Yep, And, and way too tall. Right, and for our for our American friends listening, or those that have never been to a consignment bull sale, I remember these growing up. Where when we brought bulls into consignment bull sales on the second day after you have usually washed them, maybe done a little bit of clipping, you parade yep. them in front of a selection committee, and it's just like. American listeners, if you class out a steer at a major show or or yeah. in Texas, how they do the classification system, mostly in Texas, but if they call your bull, he liter- he lives in the trailer for the rest of the week while you're there marketing the rest of the bulls because he's not allowed to be in the barn. Yep. In Edmonton, um, I got to be a junior caller my second year being there. And the consigners were given, they, it was a, a government form, because those cold bulls went to the plant, except if they were deemed okay. too thin to hang a carcass. Right. That's that's quite and interesting. It, and so they used that hostile breeders, um, and so that entered that performance era right at the right time. And these uh, guys would... Uh, take their bulls into the wash rack and put a pipe down the water pipe, you know, and get, fill them up, get them over that two pounds a day. But I, uh, <laughs> a number of times I, I got to deliver the, uh, cold slip and it was pink and no guy, when you come up that, what didn't matter what breed alley it was, the pink slips was the most dreaded thing because liner was backed up already in the South Barnes at yep. Edmonton. Yep. <laughs> that bull walked right on. You know, we had fellows that had big fat bulls, uh, but feet blown off and were cold and went to the plant. Right. And all in the name of trying to better genetics being offered to local producers. Like this is also in the heyday of having 40 to 60 cows. So buying Uh, bulls is a very regular occurrence. Every year, uh, you would have uh, different commercial guys or uh, pedigree guys that weren't in the game. You know, they just raised 
short horners or they just raised Herefords because they liked them. And uh, they were the wonderful markets, you know. But the uh, the culling committee was, was uh, backed by the Better Bull Program, uh, first sponsored by the Canadian government. And then each province took it on and did a twist to it. So yeah. you would get, if you would, buy a bull in Calgary or Edmonton, where the only two sales in Alberta, Regina Bull Sale was the third one, mm-hmm. where you got the bull wherever he come from, wherever you live, the bull was delivered to your closest rail station, free. Yep. And yeah. you and you also got a, a cash rebate, and it changed over the years, uh, you know, up mm-hmm. a bit for these better bulls. So it was very important that. The, uh, there's always a, a federal or a provincial egg guy at the scales. And then the culling committee, which I spent a few years on, and the bull walked off the scale. Gene Chris would be there calculating the average daily gain out. And uh, she got real handy with this little, wonderful little chart, you know. And there was so many days, and you did make that poundage out out yeah those were calls i i never got to meet him but but my great great uncle john baskey was a bull selection like like government type employee oh yeah in the in the mooseman area and my dad's told me a few stories about because back then everyone went to consignment sales in the oh yeah you know in the late 60s 70s exactly no one had their their own sales to a scale. Like I remember being nine or 10 years old and still going to uh, consignment sales with all of our cattle in, in Whitewood, yeah. Saskatchewan, right? Absolutely. Uh, one of the very first uh, on-farm kind of production sales would have been the waiter with their little showrooms. So I wanted to just jump back a second I'm very fortunate that on the podcast here, I have a wonderful shorthorn listening audience. And I just wanted to to bring up your mother a little bit more. What was her name? Irene. Irene. Irene, Irene Bateman. Bateman, yes. And you had said she just developed such a love for the breed and got out and did lots of visits and were, yep. is was she, you know, kind of in that, that uh, front driver's seat of looking at the popular types or developing the relationships with some breeders because, you know, eventually you guys did hit the show ring heavy, but you were also selling cattle all over, like (laughs) here, there, and everywhere across the world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, No, mother kept her... She also she had a, a, a business of her own in ladies uh, on the ladies side, ladies wear high end business, and uh, she would come early on. She come to the odd show, but she uh, just wasn't the right time for her. She was not particularly welcomed by the ladies committee back then. You know the ladies auxiliary and. Uh, uh, she, she would go probably to more Angus things because one of her lady friends was Irene Bolts and Irene Frame. Yeah. Oh, no, that's neat. And as you traveled 
with her together in the summertime, was she very much a pedigree lady or was she trying to follow the look and the type of those cattle or like how did, how did she help you and then vice versa you help her in the progression of your guys' herd? Her um, sister had married a, a, a Norwegian fellow and they had, his family had these farmer cows, grown dual purpose type cows. Uh, and uh, it was this uh, cow in uh, Scandinavian, it's Krunup, which is Connie in English. And she said she was no Kruna. In other words, she wasn't big enough and she wasn't square enough and she wasn't having any meat to her. And so she had this kind, this type in her head. And it wasn't until we moved to the dual purpose cattle for a number of years that she finally decided that that would, we were good on, we were on the road. Do you know roughly like, when you hit that spot? Is that into the mid seventies or later than that? No, it would be in the early seventies. I think 72 is when we were the first dual purpose cows, registered cows. Like uh, you can tell in every part of Alberta what the DA was because the DA office and the man were absolutely pivotal for the uh, advancement of purebred livestock in their area. But they would promote the breeds they liked. You know, so at a time when the uh, lands were being opened up, uh, Beggarville, you knew you were going to see Ayrshires, a few Jerseys, and a bunch of shorthorns. You go a little further east and you got into the Hereford and shorthorns. If you went to Edmonton, of course, you got the Edmonton milk sets of this whole scheme and shorthorn. Go south, and it was like shorthorns and shorthorns. So the shorthorns, the breed, back till we got little, you know, it was a huge population. And you got southern Alberta, and of course, the white faced cattle did show their uh, mark and their ability to uh, do that range thing. But the right. and it's a different country. my mother pretty much has not bothered with the cattle whatsoever. She uh, okay. kind of just said, eh, you're on your way. Yeah, she introduced you to it, and you yeah, and it, you took it up running. Just, yeah, she just used yeah. to say, it's not the Karuna. Yep. And uh, that was all that kind of stuck in my head, you know. We did, the Linfields at Barhead were uh, uh, pole shorthorn breeders. Um, um Never showed, never done anything. Always bought a very good bull and uh, very close friends of Jack Kerrigan's. So they would get a, had used a number of Jack's bulls that went on to be famous, but they would, Jack would farm them out at uh, Linfields. And Ernie is a pretty good feeder, at, you know, for the time. And the bulls at Corona Stamp was there, which ended up in the Thomas, that uh, Manitoba. Uh, cyclones, and uh, uh, there was a uh, a few like that that Linfields would have a few calves by. So I don't know if there was a a written contract. Right. These bulls would get unloaded, and you know, always a yearling, like coming yearling. I bought a few cattle from them, a few from uh, Camback, had short horns, and then they kind of waned away and then come back again with the boys gotten older. So there was, you know, tried to buy local, but just nothing big enough. Yeah. You know, and here the influence was 
the case, the coat, Charlay's, out of Calgary. Okay. It was the Spring Bowl sale back in the early 70s was the steer show to beat. Like they, the, you had car lots of steers, you know, 12s and 20s, pens of three, pens of five, singles. And uh, Kalal, Joe Kalal, well-known uh, man in northern Alberta, he would have the odd single that would beat him, but uh, coats were a huge influence on me. You know, they they had these charlets, and they just had gained. You know, they, I remember they had a, a car lot of 20 yellow uh, charlets, so probably second, third generation, seven, eight. Yep. Oh, 1,380 pounds in that sale, the Armstrong sale, is always the last few days of March. Well, you didn't have a cow at that time that weighed that much. And these are just, uh, you know, coming year olds or just past a year old. Right. And so that was a huge influence, I think, on most of us. You know, like we had uh, for a couple of years, for a few years, the Junior Futurity Show. Uh, changed its format completely. used to be junior procurity, but the age of the critter, not the age of the handler. And uh, so with junior procurity come along, guys like Howie Schneider and I had got to be buddies that way, and uh, it was dominated uh, by uh, Rita Reich. She probably had four champions in a row. My uh, my one short one, half of one of the first ones was a that I had bred. She was reserve champion all breeds heifer mm-hmm. one year behind Rita. But Rita's uh, you know, got hold right bred big big cattle and we judges were selected that were thinking modern. And uh, so they uh, the, that process was quite easy, you know. And but certainly after this year won the American Royal at Charlotte's year, it just it made us all at least a number of us think Big. Right, and at that time when coaches were bringing in those yellow-hided calves, buckskin-hided calves that were that large, and they were kind of pushing well beyond the current set boundaries, they were really dragging everyone up with them, oh, yeah. you know, from a size standpoint, and that's how you're talking about selecting those short-horn cattle that had more size, had the stature, because you're competing in those yes. interbreed shows, trying to, you know, trying max, to win. Yeah, trying to win. Who doesn't want to win? We, Everyone no. can go to town to have fun, but guess what? Winning's fun, too. But I tell, I tell you one thing that did when you did well, even if you did not win, but you could go to the Edmonton Bull Sale, which would be a 1,000 thousand head of cattle. But it was also... They sell purebred pigs and purebred sheep. So you've got that whole combination of mixed farming. And like I said, 40, 50, 60 cows. If you had 100 cows in 1970, you were a big guy. Yeah. I'm 33. I've never seen a purebred pig sale in in Canada in my lifetime. I've never been to one. That that industry just changed so much in the 80s. Because of the bonus situation, that's why it changed. Huh. With with the cattle, and then we're you know talking about those types, and you're breeding them up yourself. You're 
like you, you've talked about pretty much going all over North America sourcing genetics, it must have been a lot easier to purchase something, say, in the United States and bring it up to Canada and and vice versa of selling them down there. Probably a lot fewer border restrictions. Yeah, well, there was no border restrictions. I mean, used to, like, when Western breeders come to Alberta, I mean, uh, be careful with the date, I think 1967, there was no joint beef breeds. There was nothing written that this semen had to be so-and-so and, you know, 42 tests later and so on and so on. It, uh, and those semen, uh, artificial insemination was only in the big centers. And you could not breed your own cows. You had to have a licensed technician. So you could bring the semen from the States <laughs> you had to have your friend, the AI technician, uh, come and breed the cow. Okay. A lot more of a regulated process. Joint, joint beef breeds uh, got their hands on things. Then it progressed a little bit, but this groundwork, as we know it now, is about the same. You know, and if you were had that semen in your tank and they asked you for a semen inventory because they took an inventory like, Western breeders, we'll say, and uh, you weren't charged or anything. It was just to understand how much of it was sitting in Canada that didn't have regulations. Because remember, the science behind it wasn't like we have today. Right. You know, there was no noting that blue tongue would be carried in the mm-hmm. semen. You know, you just you never thought of it. So when you sold a bull or a heifer to the United States, you loaded her up in that Edmonton area, or when you moved a little bit further south, you stopped to say hi at the border, and then you just kept on driving? Like, what was that Pretty like? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, then uh, the first forms I remember were uh, A74 forms, and you had to have a vet sign them. Your local vet always had to sign them. And then uh, there was a fellow by the name of Earl Baxford, out of Oregon, and he would come up in the Edmonton area and Edmonton bull sale were his favorite haunts. But he he bulls up and down the, the way, but he only bought shorthorn bulls because Oregon is, at that time, a shorthorn country. So he'd sell some into Washington, Idaho, I'm sure, but so he would buy a, a liner full, maybe two liners, 100 bulls, some of the sales, some privately. He, and if he got to know your herd, he'd phone you and say, well, what do you got? Six, 10, 20? How many giving me? And I'm only paying you 600 bucks. Oh, okay. So he's he was letting you fit the bulls into the price range for him to get down there than to resell. Yes, yep. yes. And, uh, you know, like the, he, he did that for a number of years. And, uh, when the pole shorthorns come along, he was quite shy to take them. He very much liked, and his customers obviously liked horned cattle. Well, that's the tradition of breeding cattle, but even in today's day and age, to yes. just to tell a cowman to change something drastically in their operation. I, yeah, I, I try to think of myself <laughs> as progressive, but sometimes I get stuck in, in those habits of things are hard well, to change. And, you know, genetically, uh, probably more 
in the phenotype, the, the physiology of the, the gene, a, horn, a little bit of horn breathing in anything, in any of our breeds, is a, a good thing. Yeah, I, I since we've started to bring a little bit more horn genetics, we've been predominantly pulled since pulled cattle first kind of started gaining a little bit of traction. But I'd say in the last 10 years, we've put some more horn blood back in our cows. And, and I think it's been a nice opportunity for new genetics and to broaden what yes, you're I'm, doing in the cow base. So with bring uh, some new, uh, new bloodline. Mm-hmm. So right now we're probably what in the, in the mid seventies, late seventies kind of timelines yeah, of what we've been talking 70s. about. So where are you living at and, are you still, oh, still just uh, under uh, Raleigh Bateman? Yep. Yep. On the, uh, and then, uh, you see, uh, I was hooked up with Malenkas and uh, with them, Paul Jaremko. And the common denominator with both of those uh, people was uh, the Dave Ball breeding. Because the flash, <laughs> the light bulb went on, Jack Kerrigan's, his herdsman, Paul Gonet at the time, uh, said, you know, there's this Elmer Berg and Paul Jaremko. He said, haven't seen their herds, but they brought this big bull to an Alberta Shorthorn Field Day. Pole bull. Oh, okay. So, no. Oh, no. So, Malenkas and I become fast buddies right till Victor and Bill are both past now. But they, they had a heifer that I just had to own. We put her in my sister's name so she could show in futurity in Edmonton. And then she started to talk of the town. She she was the uh, lead-off heifer in the pen of five in at Agribition. And uh, I eventually got her mother bought and uh, sent her mother back to the royal with a, oh, maybe where's that heifer calf at foot? Anyway, you know, we're, we're still in that early 70s with that tight change you if you didn't get a modern judge, there was no sense going. Right. Stuff you was enough, happening. You feed that you could do both, you know, the little ones and the extreme girls, as they would be called back then. And uh, this Rowan doll, the cow weighed a ton at the Royal. She was third in class. And the judge uh, just said she's just too damn big. Right. And a ton show cow. Really, a lot of show cows would be up in that ballpark nowadays. Oh yeah, and they would, you know, they wouldn't wouldn't look the ton. You know, they're so well, the weight is more evenly distributed than it was back then. Yeah, she was too tall. I think the uh, Scottsdale cow that won the little Clara cow was eleven hundred and five pounds. Or okay. Yeah, she was about half half the weight. Yeah. So no, with your new friendships and, and that, did you still operate as yourself, Raleigh Bateman, or did you guys ever form some partnership cows or different we, we, prefixes? The early partnerships was with Paul Jaremko, Paul and Emil Jaremko, Ken Barb. They um, were bachelor brothers, and they took me under their wing sort of thing, and uh, and of course, then when it comes to showing Victor and Bill uh, Malenka, Melbourne Stock Farms, and you know they had Victor had all those beautiful daughters, and when they no longer could show or weren't available, you know, in school and such as, then I was a cowboy there. But at Jaremko's, you had the big and the little in those those years. 
because they, they bought this bowl called Baldy Perfect Count. Went to Vegas. He actually weighed 2,880 pounds. That's in uh, 71, 72, I think it is, and which was unheard of. But that put them on the map. Yeah, that's a monster. Yeah, and uh, he he would walk Agribition Supreme Champion, and uh, <laughs> probably every guy in the barn would have to be having a, a look at him because he also had this really buffalo front end uh, hair and heavy curls. Oh, yeah. Muscle, in the time tail. before it was, we were clipping him down, and like that's one thing I see kind of in the show world at the moment is people clipping the crests off these bull calves oh, I wish they were so tight. Yeah, no. But see, back at, at that time, with very little clipping done, they would go with their hand shears, and I would be the guy that introduced that flathead to the Edmonton bull sale because we wanted them bigger. And I had been to Denver yeah. and watched this uh, couple of these guys and, you know, little dumpy heifer and uh, the flank line clipper. So from the, where that flank goes into that belly, yeah. you take it straight across. And so that you have all this, quite a bit, probably the bottom eighth of that belly, you could see the clip line if you were looking for it. But you faded it out and it just made them look a whole lot taller. I got so right. doing it. They took that sweep out of them, right? And they kind of streamlined them a little bit more to, yes. to yeah, get a little bit more sunshine coming through there, as as I've heard it said <laughs> in the previous. Yeah, lots of times the sunshine was all in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> right? You you would leave the leave these top three heifers out, you know, and gosh, they all weighed their fairly close, and then the real but was considered the good one. She was be a hundred or two hundred pounds less because she was so tall and narrow. And like you back then you had to learn to clip corrective clipping. Like today the cattle are so correct. On average, there's you know, we still do lots of clipping and stuff, but no none of this corrective yeah. stuff. You can just dive in and let it fly. I I yeah. get what you're saying about the corrective clipping. It's like when we're getting ready for showtime and you bring in a a group of younger, immensely talented kids. I was never that good at that age. And that's why I'm hiring them to come help me out. But I, you have to tell them, you know, we don't want, we want to leave some hair on the back of that hawk. We want to make sure we're bringing some shape into, you know, into that back leg. Make sure we... We don't just burn the knee off to nothing on the front side. And it's yes. just little things about, you know, sometimes we're not clipping them for a jackpot. We're still clipping them to take them in. I, I can out-clip a front end to anybody. I got to be quite, uh, and tails, like jacking the tails. And, you know, a, a given beast, it was not uncommon that you would go through three or four cans of glue for just one beast. Yeah, that's and that's crazy because in, in today's day and age, you like have all you have all these cans, and the kids that are working for for you at the shows, they pick up the can and they squirt it into there, make sure it's working good, but they always <laughs> seem to always only grab right full cans, 
and leave oh, a it, whole bunch of quarter full cans just laying around on the ground. <laughs> Maybe well, that's my, know, the, that's probably the my age first, showing. But very first uh, uh, show using glue, uh, <laughs> it was because there was no livestock supply outside of the the uh, vet supply. So we would go to, uh, you had to hope that you, there was a printer shop, you know, like the newspaper. And oh, they yeah. would, and the drugstore was the first one. Rexall drugs that carried 5M right. spray adhesive. Blue and orange. <laughs> yeah. Like, holy God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you see, what nobody said, told you how to get it out. <laughs> really? <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, okay. I, this is all a secret. Right. This yep. is a secret. You get out and on your knees, boy, with the uh, <laughs> saddle soap, that glycerin bar. And eh, that takes some talent to get that glycerin bar to go right. But this glue that we paint the cans white. And lots of oh, guys would... Uh, so people wouldn't know what there was. Uh, yeah. But at, they the, at the prime level of competition. Yes. Right up at the very top. And so they most a number of them wouldn't want to ask you, of course. So they'd run down and go, hmm, must have been white spray paint. So they come back and buy with a kind of spray paint. Not really good for hair. No, no, not like <laughs> today's paint. No, no, that today's paint is not mm-hmm. even similar this would be probably with some lead in it oh yeah so with yeah. oh yeah the old lead paint right so with yourself going down to denver and learning from how the americans were revolutionizing show cattle equipment and techniques because like you would have been to denver several times before agribition really even oh yeah became yes. uh, and started going uh, I'd imagine you would have been at one of the first agribitions and probably also one of the first farm fairs then? Uh, agribition, I was at the very first one. I, I was there, exhibited for 48 years. Just oh, the last couple awesome. of years that I didn't make my 50 years. Yeah. Just, you know, unfortunate. And farm fair, I was part of that steering committee. Yeah. Uh, farm fair. There used to be a summer show. That was probably, and I've judged around the world in beef and dairy and horse, Edmonton's old exhibition grounds, and there are pictures of it. They had, the ring was a, a grass ring lined and on the perimeter and up the center with these huge old maple trees, like towering things. So, and the rings were both sloped. They carried a very soft slope, so if you got... You know, pay attention. You're going to check that spot. And you might push the guy in front of you just a bit because I want mine to run uphill. Right. Maybe he'll probably growl at you. Just move a little bit. Just a, it doesn't need to be much. Yeah. Well, and, uh, that started the absolute craze in my head to show. And... Uh, like technique is uh, real good. Because over the years, in terms of someone that, and you know, my podcast, I talk lots about showing cattle because it's something I love. I'm extremely passionate about probably, you know, that bug bit me at 
eight years old and has just never let go. So yeah, you... we're about the same. Yeah. My mom always tells everybody that it was cow crazy. It was born cow crazy. Mm-hmm. I guess I escaped when I was a two year old. Uh, they were visiting some friends and uh, they started you know, screaming my name and mm, two or three. You know, I don't remember any of this, but there I was in with their bull because it was he was the closest thing and he was a Hereford, she said, a wonderful. And he said the bull just could get careless. He was, you were actually having a, a nap beside this bull. And if I uh, was at the farm, I would be in the barn. Because just, and the first first last thing I showed was for Paul Bassani. Uh, he's an old time Hereford breeder out of Alberta. And uh, I was seven years old, and he had a Hereford cow with a well, I suppose the calf was maybe a week old at the summer show. And uh, I was thrilled to death. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. She white-faced thing drugged me in the dirt and ran off and sucked his mother when he shouldn't have. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, like not a good start to showmanship thing. So with your, you're with your short-horn herd and you're building up and we're – kind of jumping into the late 70s, early 80s, and you know, you're building a brand, and that kind of brought a move into, like when was the move into Saskatchewan? Was that a little bit later than that yet? That's quite a bit later. Okay. So so we're still in Alberta and doing our thing there. We're selling cattle. You've started to, have you started to do some flushing and also selling semen on your herd sires? We were we were early flush with Holsteins. I'm a I raised Holstein as my passion. I'm still do. Um, you know, you have it. Just spend enough money on Holstein to own three hairs on her, so you can stand in the picture. <laughs> right. That's, that's how I describe that's it. That's you know? that that is a good description of it. There, those really high end. Show Holstein yep. cows, man, they're expensive. Yeah, they, and they, they've always been the first love. And, but with the uh, Shoron cattle, uh, they uh, was having kind of cornered Berg because Berg went to the Royal with and uh, just cleaned house. Like this would be 75, I think it was. And uh, he had these monster cattle. Well, Elmer and I had developed a, a very good relationship prior to, prior to that show. I encouraged him, but you know, he, he and his family did their thing. And after that, I probably drove, I can't tell you how many American customers, because you know how the word just flies. Well, no, you're way too young. So you'd get on the phone, you know, and it would be expensive. You know, four or five dollars a minute. So you did not talk very long. Yep. Yeah. I still I remember long distance phone calling. I remember collect calls still. I'm yeah, kind of right on the it. soft spot of when all that went out because you know I've got two kids. I doubt they ever see a payphone. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, well, at the payphone level, I said really just a comment that uh, it was the when you were away from home the only device. And sometimes those operators, good God Almighty, if you didn't have the exact change, uh, you 
she would just cut you off in the call. Right. There was, you know, when it was always coin, there was no paper money mm -hmm. to go into a phone uh, and the connection would be quite awful. Yep. And depending on which American you talk to, uh, they too would be on a pay phone. Right. Because your home phone bill, you know, lots of home phones just weren't set up for long distance calling like that. It was, no. you know, done with a lot of pay phones. But so with those Americans and you're, they're calling you and you're meeting them and driving them around as they come up, like that takes me back to, you know, a little bit of that marketing thing. I do have lots of young people that listen to the podcast right. and I try to make it so that we can learn something and, you know, selfishly oh, yeah. I'm trying to learn as much as I can. Like from your, we talked about how, uh, uh, Mr. Kerrigan told you to always buy that high seller. And you know, that's the basis of marketing that word of mouth. And then yes. it goes into print and then really the banners yes. and showing and that. So, I don't know if you had any insight on that marketing outline, because even in today, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but as you've marketed your sheep over the years, like your internet marketing has been really, really strong. And heck, just lately, I've seen the the first more like online sheep sale in Saskatchewan, yes, yes. right? So I just didn't know if you had any comments on that. The sheep thing is, is uh, I like to take some lots of credit there because... Uh, I, the first year I showed sheep because prior to me owning a sheep, if I saw one, I just, I would turn them as grass maggots is what I used to call them. Yeah. Your inner cow man versus not yeah. yet your inner budding shepherd. Sheep. Yeah. No, not, not even close. <laughs> but the marketing skill is that friendliness and be truthful. Like you can, uh, Expound a little bit, but you know when that product falls off the trailer, she has to be or he has to be what you said. You know, and I did enough consulting in my lifetime that there's guys that uh, uh, back in the day you couldn't believe one word, one flipping word. Oh, she's thirteen hundred pounds, and from the Holstein world, my eye got is so well trained, and you know. I had a standing order from three different American firms, any shorthorn or Angus or Hereford cow that was 55 inches or taller, buyer and sender. And so, you know, that word gets out. You yeah, know, just, after, just based on hip height alone. They were, they were looking yeah, just, for uh, hip height. No, at shoulder height, not at hip height. Okay, shoulder height. height. <laughs> yeah, shoulders. So, you know, some cattle, you gain two inches, maybe more. Right. And so that, and that chase for the big ones. Then, of course, we went absolutely catch wild, stupid. But the marketing that is, I think, most of it for a young person, you always be upfront. You don't have to tell the whole story. You market the beast, and depending on the question that your potential customer has, you don't exaggerate a whole lot. It's all right to say, I don't know, and let me look at that up for you. You know, if you get into, you know, if they get a customer like me, I want to know all about the second dam uh, and, the, and the beast mother. 
the sire is irrelevant for me. Right. You, you've and always been a firm believer and, in cow families. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the pedigree's got to be right. And that, it doesn't make so much difference in, anymore. But in that type change, I mean, there was um, some uh, switches that uh, I, lots of us knew about, but you know, like in shorthorns, you'd be very, very amok to call somebody out on their pedigree when six full blood, Ben Andrew Bulls, this isn't DNA, this is just blood tube work in you know, Dunhutter, Oklahoma, with type pure for shorthorn. So you, there's the odd case where the pedigree doesn't make sense. You know, and even today, you'll get something uh, that's just a real oddball. Yeah, like back breed. further in the pedigree and now with the advancement of genomics and DNA testing and whatever it has bridged that gap uh, completely. Yes. And they're like upcoming. I probably see a time when we're going to have to be DNA pretty well. Everything. I know we have to DNA all turnout bulls, walking bulls. You have to DNA all of your donor yeah. cows. You have to DNA every single ET calf. ET babies, yep. And that, that was that's from old belief. See, back in the day when those first ET calves uh, arrived, uh, 1980, 1979, that very first ET calf arrived, shorthorn calf. And uh, at the shorthorn general meeting, of course, you're bragging, you know, and there's some, uh, a, got to be a pretty good picture taker. A sportness calf picture, you know, the uh, hospitality room. And a few fellas said, Well, he, what's his, what's his mother like? I said, Well, she's just a recip cow. She just feeds the calf. Oh, no. Oh, no. I can think of three, what I thought very progressive guys. I'll believe that for years and years that that. Uh, recip cow changed the DNA. No, she changes the environment of the calf. If she, you buy yourself a wingnut recip cow, the calf will be a wingnut. Right. Na so nature versus nurture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that stigma has lived on and <laughs> I'm going, all we're doing is making gene seek lots of money. Right. Because if the calf, like, uh, I like National Livestock Records, and I think all the other breed associations still do it, you have that surprise every 100 to 500 calf. So that should keep you honest. And a, a crook is a crook is a crook. They do find themselves out of business in not many years. The, they don't stick around. Clawson Cattle Equipment is back with the Livestock Podcast as our season sponsor for season two. And without them, we wouldn't be able to bring you such wonderful content every month. So welcome, Cole, to the podcast. Please uh, tell us a little about Clawson Cattle Equipment. Clawson Cattle Equipment is proud to be manufacturing premium quality livestock equipment since 2008. 
we strive to do so in a way that keeps not only our customers happy, but also our valued employees. We believe that honesty, integrity, community, friendship, and family are important for everyone. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and be sure to check out our website, ClawsonCattleEquipment.com, for all up-to-date information, pricing, and the latest contact information. Call Cole at 780-205-4945. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much to Clawson Cattle Equipment for being our Season 2 sponsor coming back from Season 1. Without your support, we would not be able to make this podcast happen. Right. So I think we got a little off on on talking about the ET calves. I, I apologize. I just, it's like when you and I visit and in person or over the yes. phone I, I i enjoy it i like going down the path of the different stories i i just wanted to bring you back to marketing because yes. you know in all the years that you had the short-torn cattle like holsteins other breeds you're doing the consulting you're showing every year but you're still selling commercial bulls commercial females you're selling purebred bulls purebred seed stock females i I just wanted to take you back into that. And again, it's no matter what we do, if someone's afraid to tell someone what they have, you can't sell it. It's like uh, uh, someone that gets upset that their neighbor sold a $50,000 bull and they, and they say to themselves, well, I have really good cows. Why doesn't everyone, why doesn't anyone come down the road to see me? Well, it's, there's so many things that go into that. Are you going to see other people? Are you making yourself visible at these shows and and so on well, and so forth? Like visibility of, of young ones, you need to support by being in attendance at a guy's sale. I don't care what breed it is. Show your support, not by your checkbook, but just to see you in the stands and walking up and down the, the aisles and uh, uh, that way. And you know, make sure you have a business card. And uh, please make it a simple business card in easy to read print. Like there's uh, lots of folks tend to get into this very scrolly stuff, which I tell you when you got a pocket full of business cards and I'm looking for it because I don't remember numbers. And then I can't read it because I don't have my glasses on. And I'm going to make a call to you to see if you've got a bull that ABC wants. Uh, and business cards are an absolute must. If you own cattle in your own name, where you don't control it, you better have a business card. I agree with that 100%. And even on the and it, back of our business cards, there's a QR code there. So if someone doesn't want to carry around my business yes. card, they scan the code. It creates, a, it pops up a, a make new contact and I'm saved in their phone. Oh, yeah, absolutely brilliant, uh, this uh, QR code. But, you know, back in the day, and uh, get yourself, you see, like, judging has, is uh, one of the very special ways that you become. You advance your own being and the livestock around you. If you don't learn to judge... And you know now you have no excuse because if there's junior associations 
breed specific, uh, you know, Bashaw host and Steffers now hosting. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, those really keener things. Back in my day, you did, if you did well at 4-H club judging, and then you were, if you won at that club level, you were, got to go to the regional. If you won regionals, you went to provincials, you won provincials, you then judged. I probably, for in the five or six years, after my 4-H career, I judged every 4-H show in Alberta. Some days, two in a day. Right. And, uh, You're getting yourself that, out there. That notoriety. And like when you talk about learning how to judge, I think to expand on that a little bit, it's it's not just about judging other people's cattle. It's also learning how your cattle fit out there in the marketplace because being being barn blind is a major fear of mine. I never want to be that guy that's like, I've got a great one and you go to a show and then you, you know, (laughs) you're throwing stuff or whatever because you talked yourself into being the champion at home. Yes. And uh, that, that, you know, goes back to that get out and visit, whether it's a production sale, a bull sale. Uh, For years, I, April was my favorite month because I would uh, drive Alberta, Saskatchewan, some in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, Douglas Test Center sailed, then I would drive hit some of the herds going and coming. But uh, my herds that I that they bred the cattle I liked and that I could market, I was there. Uh, always, you know, give them a call. That's easy on a Sunday. And uh, that uh, just gives gives you an even bigger insight into what is in his head. You know, guys that uh, that have had success, you know, and success in sales, and in you know, every time you win a banner, it allows you to uh, charge more. Yeah, the notoriety. It it allows you to. uh, help pay for the promotion. Yeah, it's like build it's just like brand building. You look at like yeah. high-end fashion would probably be something I'd correlate it to because high-end fashion that brand the tag it carries the, Lagerfeld, no? that value, yeah. Yep, and all of a sudden the Lagerfeld he could make you the ugliest uh, um, frock and as long as the price is right and carried the tag and and that happens in cattle, but it happens as a human. Mm-hmm. Like the fear I have for every youngster, and that's like under the age of 10, is that the parent says, oh, yes, Johnny's going to show. But they buy him a pretty good heifer. But then nobody helped him along with that feed ration and that development. So they end up at their first show with this skinny, miserable, lousy thing. Uh, the poor wee guy cries because he's lost. Yeah, and it does. And, and the parents have are disillusioned that you you know that is where you the breeder you need to to, to follow up like with the uh, bull buyers, cattle buyers, the sales I've made uh, continued with sheep. I phone my customer. I want to know: Did you have lambing problems? Do they grow? So on and so on. 
and you know you encourage them to show I can't think of how many young folk uh, over the years you know from about 1975 till now that uh, I uh, got them bit by the show bug and yeah. and most of them by and large have done extremely well oh yeah I think too is when you have such an investment in when you put yourself in the situation of wanting to help those families or help others, you're investing yourself in them and it goes beyond a customer relationship after that. It becomes a friendship and I don't see a single bad thing in that outcome at all because friends are friends and and then you know, but you have to be truthful. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, there was an instance where a fellow come in and they took the low end. What I didn't like in those last of the smaller Angus cows, and I should have known better. But you know, they were taking this whole slug of these hags, and uh, there was the young guy showed up to be a security show in Edmonton with one of them. Like she was a 1960 version, not a 1970 version. And so, had I had not sold them with uh, some intention that, that that pushed them to show something, I lived in. Uh, I learned my lesson. Yeah. So I mean, just let them have a, a nice pet, and I've uh, quite a few pet cows. But just all of them, all of the young, every new person deserves your full attention. Like, uh, I've driven many a mile to clip, help show, uh, have a, a demonstration, but a hands-on. Uh, Mrs. Elliott and I probably were the starter of the junior show format, as we know it, because, you know, when I was of the age to be a junior, and this is a century ago, if you weren't of the right postal code, chances are, in some of the old breeds, that you would uh, have rare acceptance until you got to be somebody. Uh, early aggravation, I am clipping whatever, probably a, maybe the full blood salmon had had some of them, but a, a young fella come along and was asking questions, asking questions, you know, how about clipping this way and that way? And then he said, would you help me if I brought my heifer over? And he's one of the most, uh, um, done this thing in your breed, in, in Paul Herford's, uh, hugely, he repeated that story three years ago. I had forgotten all about that specific time, you know, that happens often and you take the time with those young people to learn and they, they when the competition is good the better the competition, the better you get Oh yeah and, and that's something people don't forget Yes, uh, I, it was very, uh, that kind of brought me to tears, you know, that he publicly it doesn't have to be public. It's nice every now and then that somebody recognizes you that way. But uh, just a number of cards you get. Uh, some that you know where the was a gal and she got married, so I don't know who she is anymore. And 
invitations to weddings that, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that you, you were an integral part of that early development. And it's it very, very young. Uh, you you uh, built out that network, right? If, yeah, if people network. listening on the podcast here can't tell, like, Raleigh, you're you're not above talking to anyone and sharing a, a great story with them, and you kind of built out that network, and you've had your own cattle. Your grandfather was, uh, you know, a, a very successful businessman. Your mother ran her own boutique fashion-type store, yes. and, and that takes a sense of business, and... You've always had that o- openness to talk with people and share that. The, the good stories, like one of the very first times I ever asked you about Denver, and I was pretty young, and yeah. I, just, I just remember you telling me, when you get off the plane, go find the bus tickets. Don't get <laughs> in a cab or they'll drive you all over the place and it'll cost you 90 bucks. And that's I still to this day... When I get off the plane in the Denver International Airport, I hear your voice saying, don't let the cabbies take your money. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> uh, I, 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 <laughs> so as you traveled, you know, you've judged extensively in Canada, the United States. I believe you've told me you've judged into Europe and a few other continents like South America. Yeah. As you went around and you were looking at the different types of cattle in in different areas and, you know, it even ties back into the marketing thing, but were you noticing that people or or other places in the world are playing catch up to the trends that are happening within North America or are they trying to stay within their own type and kind for that area? More staying now with their own type and kind. They've kind of set the, what is considered uh, a preferred type of beast. So in Canada, uh, in Angus, uh, like a, a Canadian Angus going right now to uh, Austria, Germany, probably not going to happen. Uh, when we were in the bigger cattle era. Like your herd being typed and you're trying to be on the front side of that type and hit the show ring and have success there. As the cattle started to get smaller, were there those that had fought that change to get so big that stayed a little bit more moderate, easier fleshing, easier doing, and then you're going there next to try and get back to a more like modest state of frame size? Well, they, they, they're, those of us that had really big cattle, wasn't hard to frame them back. There were some breeders that never did learn to frame them back, and they went out of business. They just said, oh, to hell with it. Uh, enough is enough. Yeah, because they're... find a big enough bull. Right, and their commercial bull buyer market just probably didn't want those extreme bulls. It, it started to fade. Yeah. You know, it started to fade for them, and they... And if they, if their commercial buyer didn't change, uh, didn't like what he was producing, and he did not uh, say, "Well, you know, go down the road and look at rollers or go here or go there," they just went to a different breed. 
Yeah. And it uh, so if the different breed was you no know, had the guns in the line, and uh, that customer went away. And once you lose a customer, you pretty much, unless you've got a terrific uh, uh, rapport with them, and then they won't they won't buy from you ever again. Yeah, that's that's the old agricultural handshake. So within that time, and you're breeding mainly shorthorns, but you know you're keenly paying attention to what's happening in Semitals, what's happening in Angus. The horned and polled Hereford division is growing, and <laughs> by the between the breeders, and there's also a little bit of division between some of the you know Semital cattle, other things, Charlet cattle. The introductory of polled genetics coming in there. Also, you know, as full French numbers started to dwindle, but was it, is it just your cow sense that wanted to look outside of other breeds or why did you study and pay attention to what was happening with other breeds other than just putting your sole focus right on shorthorns? It's very, very easy. Other breeds, and I could name uh, all the people early on, they were friendly because they, you were not a threat to them. And so with that, uh, like my generation, like Howie Schneider and I, Gavin Hamilton, we would then go and visit each other. Like a shorthorn guy seen out of the alley, it didn't, just didn't happen. You were considered a traitor. And so with that, uh, just cross visiting, you start to notice, and then when you are good at clipping, you are the right stature to make any little dink look big. You've got a good hand on it, a soft hand on that ring. Cattle that I showed for other people started, they were winning. And so you pretty much got to write your own ticket. But along with that come the friendship of other breeds. So you go and uh, clip a string of Solaires. Well, Sue and I own some Solaires. I taught a number of them how to undo Solaire hair. Right. And, you know, things like that. So you, you find that uh, we are the transition generation that made it okay to uh, interact with other breeds. And we're past the point of this socialization yeah. where you actually got involved, you went clipping, uh, like I put that the first three world main Andrews tales. John Brunsma from Lethbridge, he would bring these uh, half and three quarter blood mains from Quebec. The other part of them was Holstein. So most of them black and white, the odd red and white. We got half you know, and they're bred. My God almighty. Shit tag, uh, electricity, right? So that's tag. You had three days to get a hundred head clipped and the tag off of them. Yeah, and presented. Yes, and yeah. decently presented. But you know, those heifers with brain, uh, well, the, the one sale that just floored us all was these, um, a bull called Cornhusker Daughters. And they were, like most mains, unhalterable. You run them into the wash rack, put a halter on them, and you walk them back. They were that that easy on a breed. 
but he made these really heads-up devils. <laughs> they didn't have much you, tag because they moved too fast, so so it couldn't dry on them, or what? Yes, pretty much. Ten thousand five hundred. She carried the first three seven-eighths calf. She was a three-quarter blood bred. Ten thousand seven hundred. And this is now we're still in the seventies. Uh, you know, a terrific amount of money. Like the average, like five thousand dollars on these hundred heifers. When you were in in the heyday of your shorthorn herd, like how many cows would you have had? You know, at, at your say your largest point, because you're still out and about. Uh, you know, going to sales and shows and judging, and you're traveling around, but. So I, I just always am kind of curious how big your your herd got at that point. We would be anyways up to shorthorns probably that uh, the biggest amount of cows would be a hundred. No, I don't know that we ever got a hundred shorthorn cows. We'd have you know, probably one hundred fifty cows in three or four different breeds. But shorthorns, I'm going to say we'd average forty. Forty shorthorn cows, and then the rest were commercial or. Were there no, other purebred breeds? Rarely a commercial cow. Yep. Um, so Holsteins, Shorthorns, Galloways, Solaires? Nope. No, no, no Galloway. No Galloway. No, I never owned. I showed tons of Galloway. I judged tons of Galloway shows. Yeah. I saw a picture of you on the halter of a Galloway bull where his chin literally only touched the top of your cowboy hat. And that's back in the day when cowboy hats were still seven inches tall in the front. <laughs> uh, I know the bow. <laughs> that would be long to Mr. Russell Harvey. But I, I had the privilege uh, then uh, when I judged the Perth bull sale in Scotland of uh, Captain the Galloway. That was the granddaddy of that bull. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. When I saw that, I, I've actually saved that picture since because I was going to use it for when I put the, you know, the podcast announcement on Facebook right, and right. that, I, I just think it's awesome. But see, the other marketing skill I had, uh, outside of being short, <laughs> I wore red boots when I showed. Red boots. Just your, red your, cowboy boots. Your own, you got, your own little touch. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then for a number of years, uh, you could buy colored jeans, which were, so then I would be coordinated, you know, uh, green jeans and a green boot. But that was my signature thing was these red boots and I probably went through 20 pair. Yeah. Well, you, you had a little uh, fashion background that was in your blood, so, right? <laughs> uh, well, some of the guys were, weren't were very complimentary about it. And it was just like, well, get with it, buddy. Yeah. When we jump back and, and talking about having 150 cows in Alberta, was there a point where it came up that you had a dispersal type sale because like now you live in the Humboldt, Pilger, Saskatchewan Saskatchewan. country. Yeah. Uh, Pilger. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. did you have like a full sale out in Alberta or did you no, just had a full of... sale here? Here. Okay. Had a, a short horn dispersal sale here. I was down to about 90 pounds and uh, I was just, I couldn't do anything. Like how my sister and brother-in-law put up with me, I don't know. I couldn't walk from the house to the barn. So I used to carry a little white tail. And I would sit down, have a little rest, and then off I'd toddle. But to do anything, I stood in the way. 
I just, you know, it was all I could do to feed me. Right. And so, um, the Angus cows were dispersed in Alberta. The, uh, what was left of the Semental cows were sold privately, the, uh, as was the, um, Speckle Park. And, uh, that would be it. But mostly there would be, I think there was 114 cows in that dispersal short on sale. Yep. Something like that. It was quite a nice set of girls. And of mm. course, was heavy into flushing by then. Yeah. And, uh, what year did you move the cows from Alberta to Saskatchewan? Saskatchewan? It, was, it went in different, probably took four years to get them all here. Yep. You know, just yep. kind of reducing and uh, getting set up here. But, uh, good Lord, I'm going to say 1999. Mm-hmm. So with with that dispersal, and that was a big dispersal. Yeah. Um, the marketing you did on that was far and wide, and in not only in Shorthorn magazines, but in other breed magazines, and you know it was it was put out there big and on purpose. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. There was a, a strategy to to every move, and that's you know it took that long to to get right because we. We'd had a hell of a run at agribition, you know, there's years leading to it. We brought in uh, some fresh uh, stuff out of uh, the U.S. Uh, we'd, you know, kind of warmed up with the uh, advent of legs, uh, a bull called legs that put in the muscle pattern. And we went to the jungle bulls, and I was, for a number of years, uh, brought jungle bulls, and they worked a sale, but that dispersal, you know, my health had gotten a bit better, so I could uh, do some stuff. And I said, you know, there's no sense just having a dispersal. You've, you've got to have something that I can market to South Africa, to uh, Florida, uh, uh, the Argentine uh, uh, and uh, Uruguay. Right, and I had had a, a heart attack, which was really the push to then to have this. The sale was probably called a, a year too soon, but it worked well. I uh, cried for days. I can tell you that much. Well, you, I still cry when I think of it. Yeah, I'm sorry for bringing that up. I, it, it's a wonderful story because you, you're a man that. Again, if you've never if you've never met Raleigh, you can tell he put his heart and soul into his cows, and it's clearly evident in how you talk about him. In those oh, times, like uh, you know, for for the fun and for the passion of those cows, like what were some of those cow families? Because you know, you've talked with me in fairly significant length privately, just about developing cows because the cow families is what builds the cow herd, right? And bulls go Absolutely. in and out. Yeah. Uh, and it takes, uh, uh, you know, so many you, cow generations are not quick enough for me. When you, you know, go to eat, you work it is a bit quicker. But I think that if you, you have to understand what you've got. So if you have had, but a snazzy heifer calf. 
everything is right and the sire has done all right, but the mother cow, mm, nothing much done. And the granny had one and only one calf and she was turned commercial. Because, uh, you, you know, a young fellow starting out, so she was the right price. You can then work off of that three generations, so that's 10 years. It's going to take you 10 years to understand what you've got. And then you have developed a cow family that you just get better at. But you have to be your own worst critic. You know, that back of your head, nobody needs to know those thoughts. My left side and my right side have arguments all the time. But when you right. develop that cow family, and it's got to be one that doesn't, they don't have to be short cattle. Just because, like, uh, all the embryo work I, I've done, uh, not one criteria was for a show cow. I, um, production, production cows record. that are profitable. Yep, because they'll show cows. Like one fellow said to me, usually the show heifer is the one that they couldn't get in calf, so she becomes a show heifer. Likewise with a cow, you know, she's... Uh, Put it in the, the box stall because she's special. Yeah. And uh, it's one man's opinion at a show. That's good memory. And I like using young females. Like going buying out of a good sound cow family. I don't care what breed. Do your homework. And if you don't understand some of the pedigree stuff, find a breeder that's going to be utmost. And now, you know, with the internet, Type the name in, shake it around. If you still have a question, phone them. Phone them. <laughs> I can't stress that enough to any young person listening. If you have a question about someone else's cows, don't ask someone <laughs> different. You ask the breeder. Call them. Yep. You know, how many times have we referenced about telling the truth and retaining customers and the relationship and the network that you build so when you call someone and you ask legitimate questions about breeding stock, it really it's a it's a breeder's obligation to lead you to the correct path, right? Something that fits you. Yes, and most most breeders are, I think, uh, I know maybe I best uh, speak only for myself. It is a privilege when a person calls and asks. And I get that still many years after. Do you remember this Holstein cow? That's a few years since I've milked a cow. But, uh, or do you remember this shorthorn cow? I had one guy had uh, bought a bull from me in 1980, 1980. And I'd used a dual purpose bull out of the States called Nodak King's Tradition. And he put muscle in his cab, just like almost double muscle. <laughs> he developed horns. He was one of those devils, but uh, they weren't scurs, they were antlers. Yeah, and they came on just late enough, right? Just late enough in his life that you that the purchase is made. Yeah, the purchase is made. He's registered. We'd, we'd shown him. And thank God we had shown and taken a picture of him. Like the summer show circuit, you know, we would drag, you know, 15, 20 shows. Miller Mierheim, uh, she was an Angus lady. She started taking pictures. 
And so we made it a point of every beast that we would show during that summer, some place along the line would get a, a professional picture, we would call it. And uh, oh, Millie was famous. She'd get down on the ground on her belly and roll around and do all sorts of great things to get a good picture, which is, they still do, but not quite as <laughs> dramatic as she was. Yeah. Bob Arnie uh, was, uh, didn't run the summer circuit. You know, he did the big shows and good on him because uh, he, he, he did a good job. Those, uh, you get those files and you, when I get into a box of them, then the, the memories come back, you know, and you remember things that, my God, I didn't, I did. And it's, uh, that is a privilege, I think, that when people call and want to ask me, and sometimes they call and ask, what do you think? Right. So what are some of the cow names that you you would have been developing over multiple generations that you then w- would have sold to help young people, right? Yeah, the, the sister cow, uh, she was national champion. Uh, she was uh, by my one of my favorite big bulls of the era, Evergreen Seville, and you know, a short on breeder come out of the U.S. out of the West Coast and told everybody that he was a cow killer. You know, I don't know. I had fifteen calves on the ground. I might have pulled one or two, but uh, by and large. They were big cats, but made right. But, you know, they, he left his females with so much strength, strength of loin, that long neck that is feminine but not weak. Because half the femininity, I call them just, you know, the girls you trying to go to a Charlet show, they're just little front and that, that's not femininity, that's weak. But this uh, sister family, uh, they kind of did it all, all the good things for me. Now you can find them in Argentina, in Uruguay, Chile, Scotland, Germany, England, Canada, U.S. So they, they're fairly well distributed. Yeah, that is neat for for and, a cow uh, family to span like that. That's there's only two things that are ever undefeated: Mother Nature and Father Time. So when a <laughs> cow family can really expand over Father Time. That's a testament to that cow family. Do you, do you have a couple more that kind of come back to you as, as some favorites? Yeah, Myrtles uh, come. But was the, I called them Mods because I bought Maudies for a historical reason. But she turned out to be a headliner cow for us. Uh, probably that family, the Mods, are known more for their bulls like they numerous herds here in Canada and uh, in the UK. Yeah. But uh, she originally come, the, here's a little historical note. The Fretwells arrived from England, kind of like Beverly Hillbillies, you know, moved to Beverly and yep. had granny on it. Well, they come from England on the boat. Chickens, granny, cows, machinery, horses, the whole work, moved their farm from Central England to Lacombe, Alberta. Oh, really? And Jeff Fretwell, of course, the first, uh, uh, was the pole secretary, you know, because uh, back in the 60s, pole shorthorns were 
you're considered a renegade if you bred pole shorthorns. Yeah, just like pulled Herefords. Kind yeah, of happened yeah, at the same time. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you were just playing off that. <clears throat> Jeff uh, and I had become big-time friends. He was a very good mentor, terrific feeder, and uh, very modern thinking. Like he blew the doors off of any of them. When his cattle competed with the horned ones, he would win. This mod cow originated with his great-grandfather, and she would be uh, the finest of baits on the bottom and booth on the top, which is an odd combination. And... Uh, to this day, you can still find mods and myrtles. Uh, lots of hurt. Like some of them really, really did outstanding job. And uh, one of those is uh, we flushed one for uh, the Chapleton Project in Scotland. And I think she, her daughter there is the mother of three first champions. Well, that's working everywhere, right? So that myrtle cow yeah, from... From tracing back across the sea to going back, yeah, t- today's age to going back, that everything comes full circle. That's yeah, that's and awesome. uh, she has a daughter in uh, 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 there's a, a mod in Austria through Donald Bigger. Cool. So, my, so, my last little topic I wanted to ask you about is as we uh wrap up, we're where I, I sure appreciate you being so generous with your time is, is just getting into the, your, you know, when you became a shepherd, getting into the Canadian Aricot breed, you've had multiple Canadian Western Agribition Supreme Champions in the, in the sheep ring, male and female. And, you know, it's just something where, uh, you can't keep an old show dog down. Well, that's it. Uh, my next uh, showing is I'm learning to halter break goldfish. I can I think I can handle the goldfish. Yeah, you'll get them. The sheep come along like uh, second heart attack, and I uh, was without anything over winter, just the dog and a cat or two. Oh, this has got to change. But in between all of this, I'd done a um, embryo program for some people in on the borders in Scotland. They're more known for their Scottish blackface sheep, rams, 250,000 pounds for a ram. His brother brought two can, a lousy ewe, and they flushed her. So Andy says to me, well, you should take some embryos because you see, my dream was, I just wanted a curved driveway with big trees, two or four of these things trotting about, Scottish blackfaces, and a roan shorthorn, big, ugly roan milk cow. Yeah. <laughs> Tying it all together. Yep. Yeah. So, and she would have to have a Holstein friend. But, you know, something big and lazy. Don't want to milk it too much. <laughs> so I, when I got back in October that year, I uh, got some commercial ewe lambs as resets. So in with that midst of about eight months, the uh, CFIA had changed some entry rules, and I couldn't bring the, those embryos. But they got fairly attached to feeding these little ewe lambs, you know, and it's kind of nice, and they didn't bunch it too bad. 
because at that point in time, my body could not take a bump from a cow. Yeah, that's a year, maybe 120 pounds now on your way yes. back to recovery. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so coming to sheep, well, I had gone to chap over here. To, he had brought in this wire paneling, 16 foot. And I had, uh, the brother-in-law had gone the first time to pick up some, and I went the second time and saw his sheep. He had three different breeds. Ooh, I like this. And here comes this stigma I have about they got to be purebred. I mean, even the damn dogs I've had had to be purebred. Well, would I, could I have pick? Now, I don't know one sheep from the other. So I said, well, we'll just pick them at cows. But I said, you know, like an Arcots are a multicolored breed. It's like a Hereford having too much white or not, you know, too much red, that yep. kind of thing. Yep. So you get them dark-faced and white-faced and, you know, that combination of them. Kind of like shorthorns, you don't know what color the babies are going to be. So I said, I would like dark ones, and they sorted off, I know, 30 or so. And you know, we agreed on a pick of the flock price. And I was just, oh, my God. I was so happy. <laughs> now, so brought the girls home. This is in June. And uh, I'm planning agribition. But Canadian Arcots have now never been shown. They're the best kept secret. They're a no-breed. We created, you know, at agribition, you got to have three contributors and 10 heads. So yep. took 20 head and three exhibitors. Right. And uh, we also, I showed a couple of other breeds of sheep. I had bought in a few yep. others. And yep. uh, so we had a, in the championship, in the Supreme, we had, there was five rams out and we had three. In the U's, we had two. And that kind of started this role of agribition in the Canadian Arcots and every year just got better and you brought more people in, you know, and the number of miles I would drive back and forth to these different folks, helping them, you know, feed, do the feed program for them. I'm sure you run into lots of those fellows. That oh yeah, you betcha. Trying to, to get them, like showing has its advantages, more advantages than disadvantages. And for any young person, you know, that, that showing gives you that ability to uh, have some customer contact. And like at agribition, be friendly to everybody because you do not know who's the customer. Point taken, uh, I had a, a, bought, a few, I bought some four Scottish blackfaces. I was yep. living the dream. That was on a day when I was probably feeling lousy. Right, you were, you had your four Scottish four black Canadian, faces. Uh, yep. uh, Scottish black faces. Yep. So this is August, 1st of August. Brought them home. Going to show all four. Yeah, okay, that's good. Well, the little ram went into the ram pen. We can see we're the first flock to uh, have them uh, ultrasounded for um, carcass. So you get a backpack and a ribeye. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Becoming an, and, even more popular yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really popular. <laughs> and uh, we washed. We started washing sheep where they hadn't been washed before. Oh, that was different. And I, well, I cannot card. 
And so, you know, the arms just don't allow that to happen. Yeah. So I clipped them like I do a cow. Yeah, you blocked them. You, yeah, I remember it, those first few sheep that you showed, they were like blocked out. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And so the, you, know, the, you start doing a pile of winning, well, you get the trade starts to come. And the very first ram I sold just down the road here, he came by one day and we were moving. We had, there were still some cows here and I was moving them from one pasture to another. And he said, you got a ram for sale. So I sold him this Canadian Arcot ram. Moses was his name. I sold him in the spring. Now he's a shepherd with probably 400 years. And I thought, you know, hmm, need to get, sell him five a year. So I found him in the spring, you know, about early May. How does Ram work? Oh, yeah, he's really happy. But his order, and he took two more. Sight unseen. And that started off at the thing that he said to me. He said, I have been buying Rams for 44 years. You are the first sheep person to ever call and ask how the Ram turned out. You brought those those decades of beef marketing experience oh, with right. you into the into the sheep world, right? Yeah, and, and the way that you advertised your sheep, especially when social media got rolling, you never oh, saw heaven. pictures of anyone's sheep. Here's Raleigh. Here's a here's a ram. Here's a ram. Here's a ram. Here's a ewe lamb. Here's a ewe lamb. Just pictures Bombard. and pictures. You know, and the, and the performance, uh, so, you know, the, even now people seem to be breeders and sheep seem to be scared to, um, I hear some of them tell you, well, you can't push them because you'll ruin them. But the feedlot guy is going to say to you, oh, you know, uh, whatever breed it is, uh, we'll have to have a separate pen for them because they, that breed they don't push because you blow the feet off of them. Well, then, you know, get to it. Just like the other breeds, you know, Agribition is a wonderful place to market. Uh, oh, I digress. So back to this little Scottish blackface. My horned Hereford experience, uh, I learned to polish horns so good. So again, my cow experience, proof. This little Scottish blackface, the miserable beggar at home, when he got to Agribition, that was a shovel man. He loved people to touch him. So we moved <laughs> pens around, and we put him right on the corner. We had a very good pen. Yeah. You know, spots in the barn. And I left the gate open, and he could be loose in the pen. And I just uh, actually <laughs> had some wire, dark wire that you, you know, hang pictures with or um, stall cards or stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just put that across. Uh, 10 inches off the ground and he would not pass that but we were on the made the um, front page of the Regina paper daily with a grandmother and this two little boys and this little scarf blackface ram fast forward I get a call in this next year and he was <laughs> he said yeah mom talked to you at Agribition uh, about um, buying some sheep Oh, yeah? yeah? Who's mom? And, uh, you know, what's on? You have to uh, learn to ask some open-ended questions. Right. With all the 
response. But that's what I say, you know, so often you walk down the cattle alleys and uh, whether it's hired help or it's family help, I don't care who it is, you have to have a friendly stall. And uh, whether it doesn't matter what you're showing, if you're friendly and that stall is dressed to be friendly, it doesn't have to be ornate. But it has to have, you know, that this big blocking of, uh, you know, having a... Chickboards are a different story, but where they, the mat runs right off and it's not tidy, it's not friendly. Either nobody's around mm. or they're all... It doesn't feel welcoming. Sleeping. Exactly. You don't have that welcoming feel. Yep. Yeah. And so people are scared to stop. Uh, I, I think of the bear tooth years, you know, and I halted a few of those cattle over the years. And uh, you made an appointment. Yeah, that was the first thing I learned going to work at Agribition. And really, yeah, I went to work for several different people, several different breeds. But one of the very first guys I went to, he, he sat me down and he said, you know, you're 11. You're not going to be doing any clipping. You're going to be working hair, drying cattle, picking manure. But what you're also going to be doing is sweeping the alleyway and saying hello to every single person that walks by or that stops. And if someone has a question, you need to talk to them for a bit and then come find myself. He was running the crew and I knew who the uh, owner of most of the cattle were because there were several different owners within our stall. And he said, and... You keep somebody here until someone else comes and talks to them. That was a big job for an 11-year-old. Luckily, oh, I was huge. not a shy little ginger child at all and yacked people's <laughs> ears off, but it was a great learning experience. And now we, we love bringing young kids with us to Agribition and, and uh, you know watching some of the young people that have grown up showing with us. I'm so proud of them for what they do now, yes. but that's a conversation I have. And I have those con- that same conversation Jeremy had with me. You have to be, and like the kids in the morning, they all wear headphones now, listening to music drying. During the day, I don't like them wearing headphones because they need to say hello to everyone and invite them into the stall. Hello, come on over. Hello, do you yep. want to talk to someone? Yeah, yep, that friendliness, you know, and it, uh, it gives the, that customer right away says, God. Those young people are friendly, but I see so often they're not. You walk through, it's a leftover crew. Boys, your breed doesn't show till tomorrow, so if you're going to get pissed up, uh, you're going to be on your feet. Yeah. Like, I don't mind, you, you drink on your own time, but if I'm paying you your salary, you're going to have to uh, click your heels up. And there's a learning experience to that because I'll say there's there's the odd time I snuck around back and had a little old nap in my yep. in my younger years, but you learn oh, quick. I, I would to... be far from remiss <laughs> to say that I was a, an angel. Oh yeah, the guys that could tell some terrible stories yeah. about me. But you learn <laughs> quick too that if you're going to go out and and uh, party with the big kids, that just means you need to outwork the big kids the next day. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, but as you develop and, and uh, uh, you get to be, um, people appreciate your opinion and, and seek it out. 
you know, that's where that, again, that honesty, there's no sense to tell them, you know, you can use useful words, and, but you need to be concise, you know, oh. weights and uh, pounds again and all that kind of thing. And uh, even then, we find there's no information given. They just, they refer to the cow, like, I like when the, uh, the uh, some of the, I think it's your stall last year, where you had the picture on the, the stall card of the dam. Yeah, that's, no, uh, we try to, we have pictures of all the dams on our display board. Maybe. So that I can take it off the display board and hand it to someone when we're talking about the different cattle. Because, you know, it just goes back to like what you and I talk about lots. Cows are what builds up these breeding decisions. There's so many bulls out there. But in your herd, there were the sisters and the myrtles. And they're the ones that then built to the calves standing in the stall. And I, I'm terrible for it because I don't do a good enough job about it. Thank goodness for for the way cell phones are now because I take so many pictures of the cows in the pasture on my cell phone. It's still HD quality and I can print it off at a yeah, high yeah. enough res to, to be able to see it well. If I yes. was smart, I would just take my dang camera with me, but you get doing so many <laughs> no. other things and you just forget it. That's see, like uh, I was what the would be the very first guy to have a, a digital camera in the cattle world. Like when the computers come on stream. Now I'm in, in the got Turner Valley, then the South Move. I uh, got to know a telesteller, and he said, "Well, they're trialing this internet. So it wasn't called internet at the time." And I said, Ethernet. Oh, sure, I'd give it was it called Ethernet? I think so. Yeah. I, you know, I don't quite recall, but. Uh, so he comes this plastic box, and oh my God, it was strange. And uh, but there was hardly nobody you could talk to. You know, there was like three computers in all of Alberta. Well, you know, my embryo thing, my I won't call it a business. It was projects because I would do a project for you, and it was exclusive. I probably didn't do any other in that given country one project a year. And you would not ever get from me where I would sell a mating to another guy. I might use the cow in a different bull, but that would be rare, rare. So that you were getting a, a you know, this package. So <laughs> with, uh, the one fellow, the early one, it wasn't a big project. There were only 60 or 70 embryos. So I would take my Sony, whatever number it was, floppy disk. Go take pictures, and with that one you could erase them. Right. Oh my God! And reuse the yeah. floppy disk. I have boxes of. My grandfather pictures. was a professional photographer, and I remember like the film days and him yes. having his room. And then when he got his first digital camera, he was just he he was he honestly was more joyful about the fact that he could take a hundred pictures. And then select one, and then delete the other ones. It was yes. it, it blew his mind, and wow. he was such a staunch Kodiak man. Everything was Kodiak, 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 and <laughs> but his first digital camera was a Nikon, 
and that's to this day why I still use Nikons. Nikon, yes. And my grandfather, it pained him as he watched Kodiak die oh, as, a, no. as a business after yes. he retired and sold his business. He unfortunately passed away right around retirement, but as he was getting out and and uh, it, that he just hated the fact that Kodiak wouldn't evolve with the times and that. But I, I just, again, Raleigh, thank you so much for coming on. I look at my record time here. I got some editing to do and I just appreciate all the time you've given me. You're, you're the first guest I've had on that's had uh, agribition and international champions in, in uh, cattle and in sheep. So I, I thought that was really neat. And as I get around in my day job, I'm seeing more and more small flocks pop up and people that are asking about the opportunities within sheep. And I do think that, you know, outside of the beef business, you know, you're getting into sheep and if you have the right marketing plan and you go about it with an idea to the business, not just having sheep to have sheep, but an idea about a business behind sheep, it, it's exciting. Yeah. Write, write yourself a business plan. I have a young couple. They're very successful now. Uh, neither one are sheep people. And I, I tell every person that buys a sheep from me, if you feed them and treat them like little cows, you will not go wrong. They will make yeah. you money. Yeah, you're if right. You all the misnomers and wives' tales from the sheep industry, uh, you're probably not going to do well. Yeah. It's not as bad as people make it out to be, but it's not a windfall as as some no, want you to, to believe it yeah exactly so well thank you so much i uh i can't say it again enough it's you're a wealth of knowledge your stories are are awesome i've enjoyed them for years and years and hopefully we'll catch up next time i'm out uh that way maybe around doing some feed tests and i'll stop by sounds like a great plan all right. Thanks so much, Raleigh. Take care. A little bit of a longer interview there with Raleigh, but some fun stories. A man that, you know, always has that colorful entertainment flair when you're visiting with him. And, you know, it's just a lot of fun to reminisce on, on some of those old neat things and, you know, to flip back through his, his old short horn dispersals or how he had done and, then getting into that Canadian Aircot uh, program, I thought that was was a lot of fun. Just kind of a a neat, unique twist to a man that shoot he's he's just been around and in that show cattle and and purebred world for quite a long time. Remember to find the Livestock Podcast on all your social media networks: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, with at Livestock Pod. Please feel free to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcatcher, the the app that you listen to, whether that's through Apple, Spotify, the 17 other ones that were registered to, to be on. And as always, we sure appreciate you listening and, and recommending our podcast to friends. It's been a lot of fun, and as we get into this busier season, we'll get a few more banked up and ready to go because once uh, it kicks into overdrive then <laughs> I'm not sure how much time I'm going to have to spend behind the mic so closing 
We do not want to fixate on a problem, a situation, or issue. Focus yourself on solutions, outcomes, and outcomes to achieve sustainable results. Sometimes it feels like it's hard that you're fighting that uphill battle, that things aren't happening the way it was. If I could go back and tell a younger version of Curtis who is apt not to just listen because I'm I am very much a hard headed headed person, but you know, patience is one of those things that it is tough to practice, easy to preach. So just a little note as we as I wrap up here in an evening. I'm sure looking forward to getting our sail calves clipped and pictured and posted out there for the world to see. So If you have questions, comments, concerns, ideas for segments or interviewees, please hit us up. Send us a DM through the social networks. It's always greatly appreciated. So with that, we'll be talking with you soon. Bye for now.